Welcome to Word of Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is 1027-2021. We're ready to begin our worship service. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time we have this evening. We're grateful for the opportunity to study your word and stop uh, our busy schedules and pull aside from what we're doing and to look at your, your word. We thank you, Father, for preserving it for us all these many years, that it is still accurate, still there in terms of its longevity for us. Also, Father, we, we have people sick among us. We're asking for prayer, uh, Gail, uh, the Haddon family. In particular, we're talking about also uh, Mike's and, and his family as well asking for prayer. Father, you know what their needs are specifically. Uh, also, Father, we're asking that as we continue our study that you will give us clarity as we focus on these most controversial chapters uh, that we might bring exactly what your thoughts are as we go through verse by verse. All this we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. All right, so our our normal study is is in uh, Romans chapter nine, and we just happen to be in verses thirty two and thirty three today. So we'll take our time, but we have a few thoughts, and I know in particular Dwight has a thought, so we will. Uh, open the floor to him. Uh oh, what happened? Hold on. Go ahead, say that again. <laughs> yeah, we, we missed your full introduction. It sounded like you were far away. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. Okay, so we will continue. Go right ahead. We are just getting into what your thought is. Uh, we recorded it, so we're we're good that way. Oh, okay, okay. Um, all right, so I I couldn't hear it, mm -hmm. uh, so you did say that we are in uh, Romans thirty-two to thirty-three of chapter nine. Yes. And yeah. my question, um, you know, here here I go again with the broad thoughts. I, I'm trying to narrow it down to something specific. And I think I think I want to get specific around the idea that in the church age, um, God gifts individuals differently. So we see um, Paul addressing several um, several audiences, the Corinthians, for example, and talking about the separate gifts that that um, will be given. Ephesians four um, talks about gifts that will be given. You know, the pastor, teacher, um, apostles, and prophets. Mm -hmm. um, and we know that this gifting is at the individual level because people like Paul were especially gifted or blessed with um, the responsibility of, you know, they were, they were giving a specific calling, you know, for the Gentile, to preach to the Gentile, for example. In the Old Testament, um, I don't see much 
were, I'm not sure what the word is gift. I, I don't see that. What I do see in the Old Testament under um, Israel is um, he is God anointing people for a particular purpose. So is there a distinction? Is it, uh, well, I should say, what is the distinction? And I, and I think we know that in the church age, well, there is permanent residency that the Holy Spirit takes up within the believer. Um, within in, in Israel, um, somebody is still saved by grace, but the, the they still are um, they still have a sin nature. So the Spirit hasn't taken up uh, residency, uh, permanent residency in them. Instead, we see examples of where they are anointed for a specific task. Does that um, sound accurate? It does. Yeah, I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head. Um, I would say, especially when you think about the reasoning why, and I think you, you just said it, which was they Israel is not necessarily uh, um, a new creation that has come through the gospel like the church has. The church, in the church, everybody who is in the church has come through the gospel. We get that from Ephesians 3.6. That's an important factor that Israel did not have. And we say that uh, Israel was a new racial creation created uh, on the back of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, of course, God expected uh, or desired that this new racial creation would be also believing in Christ as well. So Abraham was the pattern even for Israel. Abraham was revealed as a patriarch and God expected and well of course you know that Israel would be uh, would, would receive salvation but Israel for the most part a lot of them refused it. So when it came to the, the stab, establishing Israel, you're right, God did gift certain individuals. When we say gift, we, that's really not the word that is used. It is he anointed or the spirit would come upon them in order to, uh, to facilitate whether it was building the temple or some function that God wanted them to, to do. And, um, for that reason, that's why they had those special abilities. So, in this case, with the church, it's, it's a whole different scenario. The Holy Spirit comes uh, as we are saved. And obviously, we're talking about the church universal. So, the Spirit comes into us. It's not just upon us. Because in the Old Testament, the Spirit could come upon you, and then He could leave you. We know prophets, priests, kings, and those who uh, were tasked with different uh, functions. And once those functions were done, the Holy Spirit could leave you. David prayed, do not take your Holy Spirit from me in the Old Testament. That's not a prayer that we could pray in the New Testament. Because God the Holy Spirit, will he may be grieved, but he will not leave us. It says he will be with us forever. 
and in the Old Testament, those functions were to facilitate the building and of national Israel. In the New Testament, uh, the gifting is for the common good of the church. So, in in some ways, you could see that as uh, supporting the purpose in both, but um, there are two different purposes. Israel was an earthly people. We are a heavenly people. Israel um, was of this world. We are not of this world. And we could go on. So yeah, in the in the giftings of the of the church, one thing to note: those gifts don't function until the person is of age. So God doesn't send children out or... Now, of course, he could, um, he could gift um, any gift that he wants, but, but gifts operate in the church as a person is of age or grows up. So God doesn't send children out to battle. He doesn't uh, expect that children function according to their gift until they come to the full knowledge of truth. They need to know what the plan is before they can operate under a gift that's supposed to support it. That's one way to think about it. So yes, you you said it right. And I think as a result of uh, Israel being a racial species, you know, a new racial creation, they didn't, you know, God's very specific for them. People in Israel could be saved or unsaved. And we know that from the standpoint of when, even as they left Egypt, and even though they went through, they had the whole Passover, you know, those who, you know, put the blood over their doorpost would be spared. The firstborn in that house would be spared and so forth. Well, we know that there was a mixed multitude once they got out into the wilderness. And wilderness meaning desert. There was a mixed multitude, meaning there were some people who were saved in that multitude and some people who were not. And as it is, if you look, looked at national Israel throughout uh, the scriptures, the prophets went to Israel. Some people were saved in Israel, and some people clearly were not. We have scriptures. In fact, we're talking about that today a little bit, so we'll get into it later. But but that's the thought, um, you know, between the, the gifting that we have and what Israel has. And we, we have to say, one last thought here, is even though similar terms are used, and when we think about prophets and... Now, we have prophets to the, the church has prophets, Israel has prophets. But the prophets in the church are focused on the mystery, that which was hidden from Israel. So there's a stark difference there. The prophets in the Old Testament to Israel were focused on the nation Israel. And because of the same term is used, prophets, many will just lump them all together as the same. Well, no, that's not the case. Um, a good example of, of that is in Ephesians 3, where it says, 
Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery, which was not made known to people in other generations. Now, here it is. As it has now been revealed by the Spirit, and this is obviously at Pentecost, to God's holy apostles and prophets. So this is a different category of prophets. If I mean, they're still prophets, but they're speaking about things that relate to the mystery, which was hidden from Old Testament people, period. So we have to distinguish between that. And people try to think in terms of, well, they had gifts in the Old Testament. We got gifts in the New Testament. We, we just spoke about uh, the fact that whatever God did in the Old Testament, the Spirit, the Spirit did not have the same ministry that he has in the Old Testament than he has in the New. So we, we distinguish that. And that makes the difference. So I'll pause, see if you have thoughts. Well, thanks for validating that. And uh, yes, definitely, I can, you can see the differences um, in prophets, for example. Um, when, I, when I think of prophets in the Old Testament, I think of the, uh, the people who were sent to warn Israel that God is about to judge them. <laughs> Bring judgment, right. For what they've done, yeah, and discipline them. Yeah. Um, like Jeremiah, for example. Huge one, or Isaiah, and, um, and and so I think that is something that people think that a prophet is supposed to do today. They think people are supposed to warn people the end of the world is coming, and you better believe in Christ because He's coming back. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's, it it becomes a um, you know a, a mixed message as as evangelism. I mean, in, in a way, there's truth to it, but um, I don't think it's effectively giving, you know, the full picture. That's right. I mean, you point you pointed out a key factor in looking at what prophets, how they function in the Old Testament and seeing how they function in the New Testament, right? Well, what is, what was their primary responsibility is God was, God had something to say to Israel. In fact, the prophets didn't necessarily prophesy about other nations unless they affect Israel in some way. But when it comes to the New Testament prophets, I just read what God has revealed, something that was hidden from Old Testament prophets. Old Testament prophets didn't know about this. So what does God do? He brings prophets on board again but this time he brings them on board to speak to the church, to reveal information that has been hidden and never before seen. So it's not only information, Paul talks about, understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, but he also refers to it as the administration or dispensation of God's grace. So it's not just about information, it's about uh, this information was hidden from the previous dispensation. So now this information can be encapsulated within a dispensation, a time period. 
So that's how we can focus on time period. You know, there are people who refuse dispensations. Well, uh, there's enough in the Bible to tell us unequivocally that dispensations exist. God does handle various time periods differently. And it's very clear in the Bible. I don't know how you get around it, but for some reason they insist on uh, thinking that dispensations are not relevant. But the Bible clearly talks about it. Even though they fight about, talk, they talk about, oh, dispensations were created in the 19th century by Darby or something like that. When, <laughs> whenever I hear that, I think, no, no, we have them right here in the word of God. So um, there's a lot, there's controversy about uh, these, these things. I'll pause. No, I think I, I, um, I, I think we've, we've pretty much covered that thought. So I can, I can save other thoughts for a later time and, and narrow them down if you want to get into Romans at this point. Sure. Well, other let's open it up to see if others are have any sure. thoughts. If not, we will go into Romans, but we'll just pause for just a sec. See if others out there want to. I'm good. You good, Bill? All right. Well, if that is the case, then Romans bound we are. So Romans, so you have notes. And uh, uh, so hopefully we can move right into it. Let's see. So Romans 9, 32 and 33 is our, uh, is ahead of us. And it reads, why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it, as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. The colossal failure of Israel is at center stage now. God's priest nation to the world, and they are the ones to refuse God's gracious, God's offer of grace. Their failure began long before Paul's day when they pursued the law as a way, as the way of righteousness. This departure from God's, from grace, became generational and resistance to this point was prominent in their history. Their refusal to receive God's gracious offer and make grace central to the world brought them severe discipline from God. So as we look at this verse, we just want to make sure we tie it in because remember Israel, Israel is the one uh, who would reject or contend with God when it comes to God calling the church. So Israel, it, they're not even faithful to the covenant that uh, they had with God, but yet in their unfaithfulness, they are willing to accuse God of uh, being unfair to them because of their God's pivoting and choosing the church, 
to bring out his eternal purpose. So this is ironic to some point uh, when you think about it. And what was their, as I say, colossal failure? It was this very fact that Paul is bringing out. So the subject, remember, is not salvation because the subject is about God's calling. Although it does touch on salvation because we talked about this before just just a little while ago that the church comes through the gospel there's a difference just because you have the genes of Abraham Isaac and Jacob just because you uh, you are born in a certain tribe and circumcised and all that does not mean that you have salvation or that just because you had the law and your, your attempts to keep the law does not mean you're righteous before God so Israel had some hurdles to overcome. And the church, the Gentiles, heard the gospel, believed, and were uh, baptized into the body of Christ. That was how the Gentiles got in. They believed in Christ. So the Jews' failure does not stem from when Christ came on the scene. It stems all the way back in the Old Testament where they failed miserably but Paul is bringing out some important points about why they failed and we listen getting to the heart of this helps us even though we may have Gentile backgrounds it helps us understand from the bottom up how God is thinking about this so uh, you never know you may have an opportunity to talk to someone who is of a Jewish background as well and these arguments, I don't know how they, they would respond. And I would be curious to find out. Because they're pretty strong. Pretty strong. So Israel refused. And listen, they're supposed to take <clears throat> the gospel to the world. They're supposed to, they're supposed to take grace to the world. And yet, they refuse God's offer of grace. How can they fulfill their purpose and not only fulfill their purpose before that we have to talk about how can they be reconciled to God in this state <coughs> excuse me so we're getting into the notes we'll discuss so the first part is why not because they pursued it not by faith but as if it were by works so my first question is why I'm focused on that. Why not? It is a it is great to have this kind of commentary. It speaks directly to the issue and deals with the primary reason for Israel's failure. And I have to say that is the primary failure. It was a mixed multitude even when they came out of Egypt, as I pointed out. But even with all of Israel, uh, with the temple services, animal sacrifices, substitutionary death of animals, uh, being propitious so that God was going to teach what his ultimate uh, answer to sin was, was all taught in Israel. Now, of course, we clearly say that they had the ritual but they did not have the reality so there is a saying 
ritual without reality is meaningless. I think I got that from a theme, <laughs> but it is absolutely right. If ritual comes and you don't understand why you're doing it, it doesn't mean anything, especially when it comes to God. God is because you did it 10 times or 20 or 30 or 100. doesn't matter. What matters is the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance. Uh, a man may say, well, that person's devout. Look at what they're doing. But God looks at the heart. He knows what the person really is thinking inside. So we have this, why not? Imagine the detail that we have. I mean, not only do we know what their failure was, but we know why they failed. That's, that's the word of God. Critical thoughts and intents of the heart. That's what that, it gets down to that level. So we have that in examining the nation Israel, point B, because, why not? Because, so we have the answer before us. Clearly, this passage speaks beyond any doubt. There's no wiggle room here. And if this is not part of your theology, the question I have is why not? Why, I mean, when an answer is given to this level of detail and you don't have this as a part of, uh, of what your answer is, especially when it, as it relates to the nation Israel, I don't know why. Why wouldn't you have it? So the, we have why Israel failed. Paul says, why not? Because they pursued it not by faith as, it, as if it were by works. It's very clear, and we can we can examine it further, but initially that answer stands in the Word of God, written forever. Point C. Oh, before we say that, we say no wiggle room. There are things, especially in Paul's writings, where you can't, you can't equivocate. You can't say there's two ways to look at this. There's not two ways. There's no way you can wiggle out of this. Like, for instance, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who do good. Now, how can you change that and say, yeah, well, some are righteous. Some do good. Well, God is saying, no, no, no. You Either you have this in your theology or you don't. And this is where people fail because they refuse to allow... Uh, these things to say what it is they're saying. Point C, anything that minimizes, marginalizes, uh, or rationalizes when it comes to grace or works as an approach to God, right, has Israel's failures ever before their eyes. In other words, if you think that these doctrines can be graded on the curve. If you think, wow, God says that, but you know he's merciful. He will save us anyhow, uh, anyway. He's, he's going he's gonna to eventually forgive us. And, you know, but, you know, and there are those, we call them universalists. They listen to all the judgments and they see what God has said and all that. But then you know what they say? At the end, Everyone's going to be saved. 
No one's going to be lost. God's love will eventually envelop everyone and no one will be lost. That's, that's what, what universalism believes. Of course, there are a lot of things we can say. We can point out, hey, but the Word of God says this. The Word of God says that. You know, they, it's not in their theology. And this is what they believe. So you have a lot of people today who hear saved by grace and this is not of yourselves it is the gift of god not of works so that no one can boast they hear those words but they say oh yeah well says that but it doesn't mean exactly that they they rationalize it they minimize what god really means and they come away with this laissez-faire attitude about salvation wow and they don't talk much about it so you ask them what are the details how does one get saved what is important to god and all of this and they they say oh well i don't you know we don't get into that too much but you know i was all i was saved since i was a little kid my mother and father took me to church since i was a kid and and i'm saved and i've been saved and people think they're saved because they're in a christian family that's similar to what the Jews thought. They said, well, we got the law. You know, God showed up in our culture. We got prophets. We got all this stuff. Israel, the temple, priests. And God established this. And I'm from them. I'm, I have the genes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the law. And I've been circumcised. And So, yes, I'm saved. This is how they thought about it. And they were not. They were resisting the Holy Spirit. So we, we have to, as Israel's failure, all of their failures has to be, I mean, we have an, an Old Testament that if you read some of the things that God says to Israel are rough. They are rough. They are tough to read, in fact. We may read a couple of scriptures today, but I stopped intentionally uh, reading some of it. It's too much. And we get the point. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll see later. Point, point D, why is uh, this such an important and pivotal point? Why? why? Why is it that God turns whether you're saved or lost based on this point? And it, it, it's pivotal. And there are three reasons I give. There could be more, but there's three I threw out here for you. One, it is a matter of life and death here. So it is very important. You know, people don't see things as important in life until it becomes a matter of life and death. And they'll marginalize whatever it is because they'll say, well, it's not that important. When, when I used to think about how important salvation was, I used to tell people, really, it is a matter of life and death. Literally, just trying to set the priority level, the importance of what salvation really is. And you, Israel was called as a nation to witness grace to all other nations, and they failed. They, 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 they even failed to receive grace themselves. How could they be the ones to witness to the world? So that's why I say it's a colossal failure. So it is a matter of life and death. And now watch this. In Ephesians 
chapter 2, 1 through 3, this is how all of us came into the world. As, as for you, this is Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, in which you uh, used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work, and those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. This is where we came from. But then when we follow that up with John 5, um, 24, this is what we get. Very truly, I tell you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Look at the results of this. For we were dead in our transgressions and sins in which we used to live. Here, the person who believes, that's all they had to do, has eternal life. That's one result. And will not be judged. So being judged means, you know, once we have eternal life and have crossed and, and, and have... Uh, been justified, we will never come under condemnation again. We will not be judged. This is literally what it says in Romans 8.1. It says, uh, those, for, for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. Condemnation is judgment. We, once we're in Christ, we've come from condemnation into justification and God's righteousness. So once we have that, we will not be judged. You cannot lose your salvation. You can't, God will never condemn you. But then that's the second result. And then the third result, and, but has crossed over from death to life. There it is. We talk about salvation as a matter of life and death. Here it is. I mean, it's written for us, for us to look at and make sure it becomes a priority for us to make sure we have availed ourselves of the offer of grace. That's an important thought. Point number two, why this is such a pivotal point. Righteousness is given freely apart from works, and it can only be received by faith in Christ. Now, we know Romans 3, and I just want to go back to Romans here. And there's one thing I want to tie into these verses on righteousness that have to be tied in. So Romans 3.19 deals with the law. Look at this. After it talks about uh, none righteous, not even one, right, all this. But then he, in 19 he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Now, that's a little bit of a treatise on just some rational thinking about the law. The law, is no one who's going to be declared righteous because we already said what state we're in. Unrighteous, dead in our transgressions and sins, right? with a sin nature, all that. We can't be it think even think that the law is going to help us become righteous. But then he goes into verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. 
So even though, so, so when it says apart from the law, and then he says the law and the prophets testified, he's talking about Israel. Israel had the law and the prophets. So they had this salvation or this righteousness, which was made known even in the Old Testament. They had it. The only difference now is that Christ came and lived a righteous life before the Father and declared that this is the life that everyone must have. This, is, this righteousness is the standard of righteousness that everyone must have who are, who, in the human race. Only righteousness the Father accepts. So, the Law and the Prophets talked about this righteousness. Abraham was justified and received righteousness even before Israel was formed. So, verse 22, the righteousness, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So, we just talked about the law. That has to do with Jew and Gentile. does not matter whether you are, uh, you have the racial identity as a Jew, or if you don't, that means you're a Gentile. If you don't have the law, if you have the law, it doesn't matter. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile when it comes to salvation. We all are in the same boat together. For all have sinned. What was it all have sinned? That's when Adam sinned. I always say all haven't even been born yet. How can we say all have sinned? They haven't. Well, Adam sinned. And when Adam sinned, everybody in the human race is a part of Adam's fall, his failure. We now are born into the world in sin, shaping in iniquity. We're born dead in our transgressions and sins, right? So it's just like, uh, then it goes on to say, it falls short of the glory of God. The glory of God here is God's righteousness, God's righteous standard. Verse 24, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So we got first Adam and we got the last Adam. First Adam, we identify with him in everything he did and all of his failures. So he's a sinner, we are sinners. He failed and is dead, we are dead. Right. So all of that is true of the first Adam. What about the last Adam? The work that he brought? we will stand in him as well. And we didn't earn being able to stand in the first Adam, and we don't earn being able to stand in the last Adam. So, uh, back to our notes. Righteousness, listen, why is it important? Because God designed this, and set, that was part of the plan to bring Christ on the scene and to bring righteousness. So, the righteous standard... Uh, that is important for everybody is not the law. It is not. It is Christ. And so, so it says in Romans 10, Christ is the end of the, of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So the law brings us to Christ. It's like a schoolmaster. But when we get to Christ, then we can believe in him and receive righteousness. Point number three in our notes, while it may not be important to us, it is critical to God. Critical. His righteousness is at stake. So when we think about what does, why does God set up this austere 
strict, uncompromising standard. Why would he do that? It is because he cannot compromise on this point. He literally cannot. If he does, his righteousness has been compromised. So, for instance, if God says that he will accept one person's righteousness in the human race beyond Christ, one person, then that makes what God will accept the standard of his righteousness. So he lowered his standard. If it's, if it's below what Christ did then God and God accepts it, that means his righteousness is compromised. It is not perfect righteousness. This is why I don't understand how people are saying that there was a different salvation in the Old Testament than there is in the New Testament. They don't understand the righteousness of God. For them to make those comments, to, for them to come to those conclusions means they don't understand that God's righteousness cannot be compromised under any circumstances for any person. It's not possible. Otherwise, we don't have a God who has perfect righteousness. And I think that's what we want. We want a God who is good, perfectly good. So in this case, uh, I gave a couple script, one scripture, Romans 11, 32 and 33. But we'll look at that. But th what goes into this is, this is why God offered his standard of righteousness freely. You don't have to earn it. It's freely offered to all who believe. It doesn't have anything to do about the law. It has to do with faith in Christ. So Romans 11, 32 and 33 just brings this point out. It says, For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. So listen, there's a plan in this here, in this these short verse, this short verse. God has bound everyone over to disobedience. Well, how, does, how did he do that? He did that through Adam. When Adam sinned and was disobedient to God, all of us were included as his progeny. When Adam developed the spirit of disobedience, which we call the sin nature, we all have that inherited from Adam, the, the spirit of rebellion against God in us. We all have that. We call it a sin nature. He is, this is what it says. God has bound everyone over to disobedience. So God did this. He set it up this way. Now he didn't, he created the angels and remember all the angels individually because they all were created perfect. They didn't go through like a tree and an atom and uh, you know, that whole thing. They were created perfect and then they fell and they had to make choices. So, but for us, we are all bound over to disobedience. That's why it says there's none righteous, not even one. None who do good. They all together become unprofitable. So why did God do that? You could say, that's the reason I'm a sinner. Yes, it says it right here. He bound everyone over to disobedience. God did it. Why did he do that, though? So that he may have mercy on them all. So God is not accepting any one standard of righteousness or any one standard of goodness. He is, he, every, he said, it doesn't matter, everyone that comes from Adam is uh, bound to have the same characteristics of him. Adam, 
And Adam all died, it's 1 Corinthians 15. And Adam all died, but in Christ all will be made alive. So he bound everyone over to disobedience. Why? So that he may have mercy on them all. So that, I love where it says in, in, in Christ is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world that he may have mercy on them all. So Christ, Christ's work as the last Adam goes or is for every single person that will ever be born on planet Earth. So he may have mercy. And so this salvation is, wow, this is God's doing. So we, we may think, oh, what's the point? Righteousness, why is that so important? Well, it is important. It's important to God. It's critical to God. If you approach him thinking that your righteousness somehow matters, he will reject you. That's what will happen. He will reject you and you will not see life. And the wrath of God remains on him. Offering your own righteousness is to say that you do not regard Christ's righteousness, that you reject his righteousness by offering your own to God for your justification. That's what the Jews did. They said, well, I'm keeping the law. I must be good enough, God. You, you have to respect that. God said, no, I don't respect that. There's none righteous, not even one. So that goes to the next verse. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out so this is say this is the wisdom of God. God, I mean, and it is when you think about it. God has this high standard of righteousness; no human being can meet it. What does He do? He offers it freely through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, as it says in Romans three, freely. So it's not important to people. People don't understand. That's why I said people who think, oh well. God could save people in the Old Testament by keeping the law, but he could save, but in the New Testament, it's all by grace. How could that be? They are missing something that is so critical and crucial to God. You may just brush over it in trivial and say, oh, righteous, God, you'll accept. I'm good. God, you know at heart, I'm good. This is what people will say. You know, you, God, you know my heart, don't you? God said, yeah, I do. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it, he said. Uh, evil things come out of the heart. None righteous. And, and if you wanted to look at what God's thoughts are, we, which we usually never read in Romans 3, this is about the human race. Th this is what he says. All, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways in the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What are we talking about here? Some individual group of people here? Maybe those people we don't like. Who are we talking about? We're talking about 
the human race in Adam. That's how God sees us. There's no uh, compromise we can make to him if that's who we are. There's no negotiating. This is just simply the bad news that we have to come to grips with. And this is important for us. And we're going to continue to pursue this in point E because Israel failed at this. We want to make sure it's not our failure. Pursuing righteousness on our terms, this is point E, by the way, means that we take the position of God in determining if it is good enough. And that's what, you know, when we throw our righteousness up to God, this is, I'm going to Galatians, so if you want to get there before me, Galatians 2. We, we are throwing our righteousness up to God and saying that, God, your standard is what I'm going to give you. And you must accept it. I've been good, God. You see me trying out here. And I'm working hard. And therefore, you have to accept, you have to respect my, what I am, my standard of righteousness. Simple as that. You are putting yourself in the position of God. When you determine that your righteousness, that you're keeping the law, that your moral behavior, whatever it is, is good enough for God. God has already told us what's good enough for him. So in Galatians 2.21, he says pretty, pretty uh, threatening statement here. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God. And this is what the Jews did. They set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, which they thought, Christ died for nothing. Well, that thought is terrible to think. Christ's death was in vain. It has no practical purpose. That's terrible to think that. And then in Galatians 3.21, a very similar statement, just to make sure. Now here, last week, uh, I couldn't find, I was didn't want to take the time. I had Galatians 3.2 on this verse. But really, the verse was 321. So if you want to correct your notes, last week, the one I couldn't find is Galatians 321. It says, Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. See, now, there it is. The Jews thought a law, by keeping the law, which imperfectly as it was, uh, that their attempts were, they could have life with God, but it was not. And the law could not impart life, simply put. So the Jews failed in this. And it was wrong thinking. And something as critical to God as his standard of righteousness was assumed by them that God would disregard his standard and adopt theirs. So, uh, listen, we don't take the position of God. God, we're the ones lost. Now, <laughs> we don't come to God and say, God, uh, let me tell you what salvation is going to be. No, we're the lost ones. God is in the position to tell us that and to tell us how we can be justified. Point F, we're moving forward. Faith looks away from ourselves to another. We used to say this all the time. I just want to point it out again. Faith looks away from ourselves to another, and that other is Christ. So the law 
causes us to look inward to self. In other words, as soon as you look at the law, you shall not do this, you shall not do that. Who is, who is the law pointing to? You. And the law makes us look self, inward, where faith is automatically looking outward. Right, we, we give examples of faith, like you drop a letter in the mailbox, uh, it's supposed to go across the country and to some address, and, but you're not going to deliver it. You're depending, trusting, and relying on the postal service to deliver that, mess, that mail. I don't know, people, snail mail, not many people use it today, but it's just the analogy I'm going to continue to use. Now, you didn't deliver the letter, and you, you, you're depending, you're trusting in the postal system. And you know, when you drop that letter in the mailbox, you know what you say? I paid it, or if it was a bill, I paid that letter. Because you're assuming that the mail service will deliver that, even to the extent that you already pushed past the delivery process and said, I paid it. And that's appropriate because you have faith in the mail system. Imagine God is saying, have faith in me and my son and what I provided in grace for you. That's all you got to do. Have faith in him and he will do his work is credited to you if you have faith in Christ. And we, we read it in Romans 3, 20, 21 through 20. 24. Same thing. It doesn't even matter. If you had the law, you didn't have the law. Point G. God already said there is none righteous, not even one. So, uh, listen. It would be one thing if that wasn't in the Bible. But that's in the Bible. There's no... This is why we were talking about it before. There's no wiggle room. And that... I don't think there's... You know, people marginalize or rationalize what it says if they want, but at their peril. Remember, what kind of issue is this? Is oh, whether you believe in pre-trib or post-trib or this? No, it's not that kind of issue. This is an issue that says that this is a matter of life and death. Don't equivocate when it comes to these things. When it comes to salvation, listen, our choices matter. The ball is in our court. If you believe, you will have eternal life. If you refuse to believe, you shall not see life. And the wrath of God remains on you. So that's important. It's a matter of life and death. Point H, if you do not understand or receive the bad news. So what have we been talking about? We're talking about why we need Christ. Uh, There are people who don't understand they marginalize the bad news of, oh, God, he's not that strict. Uh, you don't understand and receive the bad news. And receive it means you have to believe it. And God says there's none ri- none righteous, not even one. Do you believe that? I mean, if you believe that, then, then God is saying, then you wouldn't even attempt to bring your righteousness to me because it's filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. Filthy rags in my sight. That's bad news for us, yes, but there is good news that not only reverses that, but counters everything to the extent that God has called it the riches of his glory for us in this age. So if you don't believe the bad news and receive it, you cannot understand or receive the good news because the good news is designed 
to be good because of the bad news. If you just, you know, it's like somebody saying they're saved. And we used to ask the question, saved from what? What do you mean saved? <laughs> the player, people used to think about that. Well, saved from what? Well, and they used to have all kinds of different answers. And we used to say that to bring out the point of, do you understand the bad news? Do you understand what you're being saved from? Do you, do you understand the position you're in, in Adam? You know, it just isn't a talking point. It's a point of conversation that we come up with to help people understand the bad news. So that is uh, a part of how it all worked out. So point number two, we're keeping going. I think we can, we can uh, move for, through this um, and these couple verses. So let's keep going. So point number two. So why not? Because they pursued it not by faith as, it, as if it were by works. That's how they pursued it. And point number two, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Uh, there's so many verses on this. I could not put them all in here. And well, that kind of leaves some things for you to go back and study for yourself and just see easily how this stumbling stone is spoken of in Scripture. So the first point is the stumbling stone is Jesus. And hopefully you know that. Right? They, they, Israel, stumbled over the stumbling stone. And that's the, and I'm giving 1 Peter. Let's look at what Peter has to say. 1 Peter chapter 2, 5 through 8. Let's see. Here it is. Like newborn babes or babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good as you come to him the living stone notice he's the stone that is this is what Peter's calling Christ rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him now you also like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is very much like what we read in Ephesians chapter 2, where it's talking about this, building this temple. And there's outside the temple function and inside of the temple function we covered. And then he says in 6, for in scripture it says, and he's quoting, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message. The message is the gospel, which is also what they were designed for. Or it shouldn't be designed, destined for. And this is talking about Israel. Right? Peter is bringing this point out, and he's showing very similar to what the uh, Apostle Paul spoke of here. So the stumbling stone clearly is Jesus. And then point B is Jesus' own testimony about this point. And it's in Luke 7. Luke chapter 7, 18 through 23. 
Let's look at that real quick. John's disciples told him about all these things, calling two of them. And this is where John the Baptist had questions about Jesus. Right? He was literally in jail at the point at this time. And John sent two of his disciples to talk to Jesus. And this is what happened. He sent them to the Lord to ask, quote, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? When these men, when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Verse 21, at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. Verse 22, so he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John that what you have seen and heard, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the, deaf, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. Listen to what he says here. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So that's interesting when we're talking about they stumbled over the stumbling stone. So that's Jesus is saying, please, I don't want anybody stumbling on account of me. He's doing everything that he's supposed to do. He's healing. And in fact, the context of this is where Jesus raises the widow's son. If you go there, there's a funeral, literally. The boy is dead and um Christ comes and uh, his heart went out to her and he healed. The boy got up from the, the, um, where, he was, where they were taking him to be buried. They were transporting him to be buried. When, when the boy got up, began to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. And everybody praised God and they all saw it. This was public. This was not something he did in a cave somewhere where he, we have to just say, yeah, yeah, that, that's what we have to believe by faith. No, it was public. Yeah, so all of this, literally, Jesus says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. That's Jesus' own testimony about it, the Jews stumbling over him. Point C, Paul's testimony. This is in 1 Corinthians. This is a quote, but we preach Christ crucified. And he clearly says the same thing, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. So the Gentile mind just is hard to believe. I just can't believe that. Foolishness. But to the Jews, he's a stumbling block. Just like we, it was prophesied in Scripture, uh, that's what's going on uh, for, for the Jews. It's a stumbling block. And point D is getting to the root of their failure and Israel's attitude. And we have it in Isaiah 65, 1 through 4. Let's look, go there really, really quick. Isaiah 65, 1 through 4. And here it is. I will read. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a, to a nation that did not call on my name. I said, here am I, 
Here am I. Uh, all day long, I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face, offering sacrifices in the gardens and burning incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil, vigil, who eat the flesh of pigs and whose pots hold broth of impure meat. And I could go on. If you just keep reading this, you will be disgusted by all the things and how God is literally bracing Israel for, for what they have done. And this, so we, we're seeing Israel's attitude in this. So when we think about Israel's attitude, I mean, you would think they would be repentant, and, but no, they were supposed to be the ones who uh, were going to bring the gospel to the world. And what we find is their attitude of exclusion. Uh, they refused to associate with Gentiles. They just saw themselves as above, themselves as above Gentile. It just became, and then they distorted the way of salvation. Unfortunately, some Gentiles have picked up their false notions about grace and the law. They may not try to keep the law, but what they do is they try to keep a standard of morality or what they consider goodness. They have followed Israel's lead in all of this, which is certainly the wrong thing to do, especially when we have verse after verse in the Old Testament about how Israel failed. So Paul is clear to tell us why Israel failed. And with the terrible things they have done, even at this point, listen, Christ hadn't come yet. And they hadn't rejected their Messiah. And all of this was just as bad as it could possibly be. That's one of the things we just have to be reminded of is Israel failed. But we must also note in point E, as bad as it sounds, we must remember there will be a remnant. Israel has a future. So all you got to do is in Romans look and there's much, like I said, there's much more that could be read about Israel. But in Romans 11, 25 and 6 says, I, don't, I do not want you to be ignorant about this mis, uh, uh, of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. It is a story that has been told before in Israel's history. A remnant will be saved. Israel will, they will have a future before God. And then verse 28, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as the election, as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. So Israel, you have a future with God. And this is post them refusing to believe that Jesus is the Christ, Son of the living God. 
and rejecting their Messiah. So, as, as bad as it sounds for Israel, remember, God has a plan. God has put Israel on pause. Their reaction to being set aside was harsh. They accused God of being unfair, but God reminded them that they never have fulfilled their purpose before God. But you know, when we get to tribulation, uh, just like it says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then will the end come. Well, who do you think will be that witness? It will be God's nation, Israel. It, and there will be no shame in that and their, uh, the way they pursue God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, let's keep going. There's just this one verse at the last, but this is a, a quote. And we will, it's a quote from Isaiah 28, 16. So it says in point number three, as it is written, see I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So the first point is this verse comes from a familiar passage in Isaiah. Well, remember when we studied the gift of tongues, it took us back all the way to Isaiah. As you know, tongues are not part of the mystery. It was a sign to Israel. And uh, it took us all the way back to Isaiah chapter 28. And this is what it says, and after, and this is the quote, actually, twenty-eight, fifteen. You boast we have entered. Oh no, no, I'm sorry. Did I? Sixteen, twenty-eight, sixteen. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I will make justice and measuring, the measuring line and righteousness, the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and water will overflow your hiding place. So we're talking about righteousness. What caused Israel to fail when it came to Christ? They refused to believe in him. Christ is the standard. Christ, God will make righteousness. That's what it says in verse 17. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. And that righteous standard is Christ. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Point B, shame. So the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. What, what do you mean shame? So a couple thoughts on shame. Quote, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah was would be put out of the synagogue. So that's shame. And this shame really is for, this passage is referring to Jews who uh, are afraid to believe in Christ, right? They will ne don't have to worry. If you believe in Christ, you will have eternal life. You will never be put to shame. And this is what, even back in the Old Testament, it was prophesied of this, that this would happen and the Jews would be embarrassed to believe. And so when Jesus opened the eyes of the man who was born blind 
And uh, the Pharisees got wind of it, and it started getting a lot of popularity. They said, let's nip this in the bud. So they came and brought those people in to interview him. They brought his parents in. And they wanted his parents to say, oh, yeah, well, he wasn't born blind. But no, his parents said, no, that's not what happened. And, um, and, but they were afraid. That's what it says here. And then also, I say, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. As well, we're talking some uh, things that might happen to Jewish people if they believed in Christ. And this is what, this is Hebrews 10, 32 through 34. It says, remember those earlier days after you had received, you received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly, publicly exposed to insult and persecution, and other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So listen, there will be no shame. Um, don't worry about what happens in this world. This is the message to Jews. And they will be um, hated, as it says in Revelation chapter 12. And the devil was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. And that's the tribulation. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about what happens in this world. And then point number C, a few more quotes. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's Psalm 118, 22 and 23, but it was quoted by Jesus in Matthew 21, 42. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done it. It is marvelous in our eyes. And then point D he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children, not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. That's John 11, 111 through 13. So notice... God continues to hold out mercy and grace, even to those who rejected his hand of grace, who turned the shoulder away from him, who said, no, I will not believe. I will work my way into your favor. Point E, again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Which is to say, Paul is looking forward to the time when Israel will be restored their full inclusion. Right now, yeah, they're enemies, but just know when the pause is over, 
God will then turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is this covenant with them when he takes away their sins and, and he reunites them as a nation. But that quote that I gave was from, a Roman, uh, from Romans 11, verses 11 and 12. So the thought here, hopefully, is clear. Yeah, Israel, you fail God, but God is gracious. If anything, you should come running back to God if you are of Jewish descent. When you read the writings of the apostle and understand uh, about God's righteousness and, and what Paul has written here, challenging those who are of Jewish descent to believe in Christ, to put their faith in him. God has not cast away Israel, which he foreknew. God certainly, as it says, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Just remember, God has a plan. And altogether, we call it God's eternal purpose. It, 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 it includes Israel, although it is God's eternal purpose has been going on since the beginning of creation. And he will continue marching toward that purpose until he is finished and human history is concluded. And every person, whether they're Jew or Gentile or the church of God, are in the places that God has called them to be. So we're going to close. And this actually ends Romans chapter 9. So next week we'll have a review and we will uh, eventually head on into Romans 10, which continues the thought about Jews and continues the thought about how they could have missed the so great salvation. We will, we will close with these words uh, and we will have prayer. Thank you, Father. We are blessed to understand that you are a good God and that your righteousness is important. Thank you for imputing this righteousness to us that makes our standing before you the righteousness of your Son. Thank you for the calling that we have where you chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in your sight. We thank you, Father, for those who joined this study and we pray that as we continue uh, along this line in Romans that you will continue to reveal salvation by grace and that even though we are not Israel we are uh, tasked with being ambassadors for Christ so our knowledge and understanding of the gospel will help those in the world who uh, need to come to the knowledge of the truth and to be saved so we pray for wisdom as we are in this world so that we know to, how to handle ourselves according to all the gifts that have been given to the church and according to our role as ambassadors. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.